many of you have ever been lost before? Anybody? I'm guessing most of you have, even if you didn't admit it. It's fine. I know you. So you, you know when you're driving and you suddenly realize you have no idea where you are? It's a pretty awful feeling, right? To feel disoriented. It's difficult not to get panicked when we're lost. Are any of you uh, like worst case scenario people? You immediately go to the worst case scenario. Like you just made a wrong turn and suddenly you're probably going to end up dead on the side of the road, frozen to death, right? You just made one wrong turn, but that's probably what's going to happen, right? Others of you, I won't name names, you get a little arrogant and despite having no idea where you are, you refuse to ask for help that is probably readily available. And truth be told, those two types of people are probably married to each other. So what do we usually do when we are lost? Theoretically, we try to collect ourselves and think rationally. We try to retrace our steps. We start looking for anything that looks familiar, right? You're looking around going, have I seen that building before? Does that restaurant look familiar? You're searching, trying to find anything that you have seen before that might help guide you back home. And then at the first sign of something familiar, what happens? Your whole body just relaxes, doesn't it? You know how to get home. I think in a GPS world, we don't like being disoriented. Now, how many of you have ever, you don't have, you don't have to raise your hand on this, how many of you have ever lost yourselves? I don't mean where you physically didn't know where you were, but when you become something that you know you're not. We tend to think that that happens more when we are younger, where we want to be liked by a particular group of kids, and so we start acting like them or dressing like them or taking an interest in the things that they like. Or when you are in the dating world and you want someone to like you, and so you tell them that you're into sports, even though you're not, because you know that they like sports. Or you say that you love camping, even though you can't stand the outdoors. We say and do some crazy things when we want to be liked by other people. And it seems innocent enough just to say we like football when we don't. But when we start down that road of trying to be liked based on what we think someone else wants, it's not too long before we look in the mirror and we don't recognize the person that we see. And truth be told, this is not just an issue that happens with younger people. The scary thing is that when it happens to us as adults, the consequences are much, much more difficult to deal with. But we as adults get lost all of the time. If we are honest with ourselves, we still want to be who we think others want us to be. We try to be the husband that we think our wife wants or the employee that we think our boss is asking for. We want to be the friend that everyone loves and the parent with the perfect kids. For those of you who have been in church for a while, you want to be the perfect Christian who says yes to serving everything and who always has a smile on their face and always seems to have everything together. Over time, we begin to find our identity in the things that we do, and we lose sight of the identity of who we were created to be. And so what do we do when we find ourselves at 25 or 45 or 65 years old and we realize that we are lost? That we don't know who we really are or what we are really here for? 
or we've been doing for so long that we have lost sight of who we were created to be, or the idea of being instead of doing scares us because we don't sit still so well. Well, this morning we are kicking off a brand new series called Fully You, the title of which comes from a book by the same name, by the author Joel Malm. If you are asking yourself questions about who you are, then this series is for you. If you are brand new to faith or questioning your faith, this series is for you. If you have been walking with God for decades, but you realize that sometimes you still lose your way a little, then this series is for you. And so we are starting this morning with the thing that is at the very root of our lost identities. The thing that was first on the scene in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve when they ate from the tree. The thing that is foundational to almost every single human being on the planet. Do you know what that thing is? Did you look in your bulletin? What is it? Shame. For women, shame is like a straitjacket that keeps us from living our lives, afraid to make another move, afraid to be who we really are. For men, well, men in our culture are not allowed to acknowledge the shame that you carry about the roles that you play in this world and your inability to live into them. The expectations that have been placed on you are literally impossible. And so most men are living this life with shame that they aren't even allowed to acknowledge. Shame for all of us is absolutely crippling. And I know that some of you got a little squirmy just because I mentioned the word, because shame has been foundational to our lives. And if we actually look at it, it feels like we could get kind of rocked off our foundation, and that is absolutely terrifying. But here's the thing. When you are physically lost or when you lose something, what do you do? You retrace your steps. Right? And so in order for us to reclaim our real, true, God-given identities, we have to be willing to identify, to, to retrace our steps and identify the things that got us lost to begin with. And the root of that, for all of us, is shame. And let me clarify right off the bat here that shame and guilt are not the same thing. Shame and guilt are not the same thing. Guilt is what happens when you have a Jewish mother and a Catholic father. That's a different situation, <laughs> hypothetically speaking. I digress. It's fine. Uh, there's a sociologist and author and speaker by the name of Brene Brown who has done unparalleled study on the issue of shame. And she talks about the difference between shame and guilt. And she says, shame is a focus on self. Guilt is a focus on behavior. Guilt says, I did something bad. Shame says, I am bad. Guilt says, I'm sorry I made a mistake. Guilt says, I'm sorry I am a mistake. For a Christian, we might use language around guilt and conviction. We did something wrong, and the feeling of guilt is something that the Spirit can use to convict us of the choices that we've made. Guilt can help us see clearly what we have done or un left undone or have said or have left unsaid that is outside of God's best for us. I believe that God can and does use guilt to course correct us. Guilt and conviction are one thing, but to be very, very clear, shame is not 
of God. I'm going to say that a little louder for the people in the back. Shame is not of God. So let's dig a little deeper into that. I mentioned last week during our Easter message, but if you were here during our Lenten series, you'll remember that we went back to the very beginning of Scripture with the story of Adam and Eve. Why did we go back all the way to the beginning? Because we had to go back all the way to the beginning to fully understand God's response to sin entering the world. So now we're going to talk about our response to sin entering the world. God's response to sin was one of love and grace and ultimately resulted in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Our response to sin, well, most of us are living with that every day. In his book, Mom said that most of us don't walk around feeling wounded. What we feel are the effects of being wounded. We feel insecurity and loneliness, resentment and discouragement. And so what, does, what do we do with that? We read self-help books and we go to seminars and we listen to sermons and we pray and we white-knuckle it, believing that if we just try a little harder, we'll find the abundant life that we know is out there, but we can never seem to find it. And so we often end up accepting a life that falls so incredibly short of what God intended for us. And we end up accepting this less-than life because we believed a lie, or maybe even a series of lies. And believing those lies has led to an understanding of ourselves that just isn't true. The initial lie happened long before we entered the scene. The subsequent lies have happened throughout your own life. And we'll get to that in just a few minutes. But first, we have to talk about what that original lie did to humanity. And so if you are brand new to scripture and you have not heard this whole story before, then I encourage you to read all of Genesis chapter 2 and chapter 3. And if you don't have a means by which to do that, there's Bibles in front of you. You can take one home with you if you need to. For the sake of time this morning and because we talked about this story in depth just six weeks ago, I want us to zero in on just one part of the story. So Adam and Eve were walking in perfect unity in the garden. They were in perfect communion with God. He was everything they needed, and they didn't want a thing. They didn't lack for anything. The entirety of the garden was open to them except for that one tree, and the serpent, whom we find out later in scripture was Satan, deceived them into taking a bite of the one piece of fruit that they weren't supposed to touch, and it was the very first moment that sin entered the world. In fact, in Christianity, that moment is called original sin. It was the moment that the world as it was intended to be broke. There's a pastor and author by the name of Greg Boyd, and he calls this the moment that sin caused us to go from a human being to a human doing. And how do we know that it caused us to go from a human being to a human doing? Because look at what happens. In Genesis 3, starting at verse 6, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Shame 
was the very first thing that humanity felt when sin entered in. The moment that sin entered in, Adam and Eve suddenly felt defective. They weren't defective, but they felt that way. In fact, they felt that way so much that they didn't want God to see them like that. So they sewed fig leaves together to cover up their shame. It's heartbreaking if you really think about it. And what was God's response to that? Who told you you were naked? It's the powerful reminder that how Adam and Eve viewed themselves is not how God viewed them, even after sin entered in. They bought into the lie that they were not okay just as they were. They bought into the lie that something was fundamentally wrong with them, and so their first instinct was to hide, because that's what shame does to us. And so Boyd preached a sermon on this same text, and in his sermon he asked the question, who told you you were naked? We know it's the question that God asked Adam and Eve, but it is a seriously vital question for you to ask yourself, too. Who told you that you were naked? In other words, who was it that first made you feel like you were not okay just as you are? Like something was fundamentally wrong with you? Boyd asks, when did you first learn that you need to measure up and then learn that you didn't measure up. I shared part of my story several months ago that I'm a survivor of childhood sexual abuse. Shame became a part of my identity at a heartbreakingly young age, as it does for many people who are survivors of abuse. I know that's true for lots of you as well. For others of you, shame came in in a different way. You were horribly embarrassed in front of your friends. Someone told you that you were ugly, or fat, or weird, or stupid. Maybe a parent unintentionally made you feel less than one of your siblings. Maybe someone made you feel like a disappointment. Maybe your shame came later in life when you were rejected by someone that you love, or when a boss embarrassed you in front of coworkers, or when you failed as a parent, or a spouse, or a friend. And so what was it for you? When did you first learn that you needed to hide some part of you because you were made to feel like you were defective or not good enough? I know it's tough. I know these are tough questions. But it's so vital. Our first reaction to sin was shame. And our first reaction to shame was to hide. And that is what most of us still do. We hide from our shame. Some of us hide from it so well that we have never let ourselves think of those times in our lives where we first felt shame. We are so good at hiding shame. Author John Bloom says that we hide in our housework and our yard work and our garage puttering that we hide behind computers and phones and newspapers and magazines, that we hide behind earphones and Netflix and ESPN, that we hide behind fashion facades and education facades and career facades, Facebook facades and pulpit facades, that we hide in busyness and procrastination, that we hide in outright lies or diversionary conversation, that we hide behind silliness and humor, 
We hide behind bravado and timidity. We hide in extroversion and introversion. Pride moves us to use whatever we can to hide our shame. And I would add to that list that we hide behind addictions of any kind and every kind, workaholism, alcoholism, pornography, drug addiction, you know, all of these things that ultimately result in more shame, but at least in the moment they feel good to numb out to. We just keep trying to cover up our instinct that tells us that we are not as we are supposed to be, that there is something fundamentally wrong with us, and when we don't deal with that point of original shame, it comes out in other ways. I was reading a story about a guy who was dealing with terrible, terrible knee pain. And so he tried to work out his knee as best he could, trying to loosen the joints and the muscles to ease the pain, and nothing was working. And then he went to see a physical therapist, and she said, well, it's your hip. And he said, no, my hip doesn't hurt. My knee hurts. And she sent him home with all of these hip exercises, and he thought she was crazy, but he started doing all of these hip exercises, and sure enough, his knee pain went away. Why? Because his knee was overcompensating for his hip. That is what our body does. It overcompensates. That is what our physical body does, and that is what our emotional body does as well. When we don't focus on the pain that first brought shame into our lives, our emotions overcompensate in other, usually harmful ways. Maybe you have heard this phrase before. If you never heal from what hurt you, you will bleed on people who didn't cut you. If you never heal from what hurt you, you will bleed on people who didn't cut you. So what do we do with all of this shame that all of humanity is walking around with? And unless you are a true sociopath, all of humanity is walking around with shame. Well, Brene Brown would say that secrecy and silence and judgment grow shame, and I absolutely believe that to be true. Secrecy and silence and judgment grow shame. But then she says that the antidote to shame is empathy, and that is where Brown and I disagree. I know that she's a sociologist who has been studying shame for years and years, and while I appreciate the idea that empathy is important in healing shame, I do not believe that that is the antidote because I am certain, certain that the only antidote to shame is Jesus Christ. And here's why I think that. And I had a little help from Greg Boyd on this. As we tell the story of Adam and Eve, we can pinpoint that first moment, that exact moment that shame entered the world, the very moment but here's the incredible thing. Because of scripture, we can also pinpoint the very moment when shame exited the world as well. Just last week, we observed Good Friday, the night that Jesus died, and we remembered that Jesus was not the only one who was crucified that night because crucifixion was a common practice of that time. They would take criminals of all kinds and prior to nailing them to a cross, they would traditionally do exactly what they did to Jesus, though maybe not as harshly. They would strip them naked in front of everyone. Can you imagine the shame of that? Then they would beat them in front of everyone. More shame. And then they would parade them through the street naked and bloody. So much shame. And they did it all deliberately. Humiliation was part of their punishment. 
Jesus died the same way, which means that Jesus died a humiliating death. But listen to the words of Hebrews 12, 2. It says, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, disregarded shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. When it says that Jesus disregarded shame, the word disregarded means that it was considered as nothing, or it also means to condemn, which is why some translations of scripture say that Jesus despised the shame of the cross. Boyd said that shame is the first thing we feel as sin enters in, and it's not a coincidence that shame is the first thing that Jesus destroys on the cross. The cross is about reversing the fall. He goes to the root of it all and goes to the deceptive image of God that the serpent conveyed and reveals a God who is the exact opposite of that, who thought that each one of us was worth dying for. And he goes on to say, and I absolutely love this so much, if Jesus condemned all shame, then we can consider all shame to be condemned. If Jesus destroyed all shame, then we can consider all shame to be destroyed. Which means that we have a decision to make. Because we have all kinds of voices in our head. We have the voices of the person or people who first made us feel ashamed. We have our own real loud voices of shame. We have the voices of all of those in our lives whose expectations we are constantly trying to live up to. As a kid, I had shame heaped on me, and I could easily point to the person or people who made me feel worthless, and I could tell you all of the ways in which I have lived with those voices in my head for most of my life, and most of you would probably say that that's understandable, right? And it is, but that was when I was a kid. As a child, I was told things about myself that were not true. I am not a child anymore. And as an adult, I have been told that I am someone who is chosen and loved by God. And so now I have a decision to make. Whose voice am I going to listen to? Whose voice do I believe is telling me the truth? One of those voices perpetuates my shame. One of those voices frees me from it. So what about you? Because you have a decision to make as well. Even if today was the very first day you ever stepped foot in church and you've never heard of Jesus before this exact moment, well, you have now. You now know that God, the God of all creation, loved you so much that he believed that you were worth dying for, that you are beloved, and that you are chosen. Now, knowing and believing, I realize, is two very different things. But now you're in the same boat as everybody else here. You're in the same boat as the people sitting here today, and believe me, there are many, who have known about God's love for them for decades, but still haven't really made the choice to believe God's voice above all the rest. And I get that it's not just a one-time thing. Most of us have to choose God's voice above the rest every single day. Some of us have to do it a hundred times a day at first, because the other voices are seemingly so much louder than God's. But as Boyd said, if it was rendered null and void on the cross, it was rendered null and void in me. And trust me, trust me, shame was rendered null and void on the cross 
That is why we continue to celebrate the reality that Jesus was raised again from the dead. When we keep living into our shame, it's as if we're sending Jesus back into the grave that he already defeated. And Jesus defeated the grave so that we don't have to live there. If you are serious about finding your true identity in Christ, you have to be willing to face the moment or moments in life when you traded your true identity for a lie. The only voice, the only voice who can speak the truth of our identity over us is the voice of the one who created us and thought that we were worth dying for. Shame was the first thing in, and it was the first thing out. Shame, along with death, has been defeated. And so come out of the grave of shame and walk into new life and new identity in Christ. Let's pray. God, it's easy for us to gather on Easter Sunday with everybody else and all the excitement and all the decorations and all of the fanfare and to celebrate and rejoice that you were raised from the dead. It's a lot harder a week later to sit here and realize what that means for our own lives because we keep choosing death. Day after day and week after week, we keep choosing death despite the fact that we just celebrated that you defeated the grave. God, so many of us continue to live in the grave of shame to allow all of those voices that lie over us to be the voice that we believe. And so, Lord, this morning, I pray that you would quiet, that you would silence those voices. That in this moment, as we think about our own moments of shame, your voice would be the only one we hear. That we are chosen. That we are beloved. That there is nothing that we could have done that you can't and didn't already save us from. God, may your voice ring in our ears so loudly today and for all the days to come. In the name of our risen Savior, we pray.